Welcome to the Healing My Parts podcast, a podcast dedicated to educating and raising awareness about dissociative identity disorder, also known as DID. We are your hosts, the system behind Healing My Parts, which also includes parts that function as a therapist and leader in a mental health niche space. We'll be sharing tips and tools that have helped us and many others, while also sharing insights from our own journey of living with the condition. We'll also be hosting guests for conversations to help educate, dispel myths, and most especially help those living with dissociative identities and professionals who treat the condition. Thank you so much for tuning in. And now, let's get healing. Welcome to episode three of Healing My Parts podcast. We are your hosts, the system behind Healing My Parts. And we are looking forward to sharing some information with you all today. But before we delve into that, we wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge everyone who participated in and went to the Healing Together conference put on by an infinite mind to say, what an incredible experience. It's a lot of incredible information. It was amazing to have the opportunity to meet many of you in person and have an opportunity to talk with you We also want to acknowledge that it can be overwhelming, that it can be both amazing to be seen in such an affirming way, and it can be really unsettling for some parts to be seen in such an authentic way. And so the reacclimation process after the conference can be a lot to navigate. And we just wanted to send you all compassion for those of you that are engaged in that process to say we're right there and in it with you. And we see you. So as we are all reacclimating, we wanted to just share some information today about the idea of therapists who have been taught to not communicate directly with parts, but also to share some things that can go south in therapy and as a way of basically raising awareness to help providers understand why some of the behaviors are harmful with people who are systems and also hopefully to provide some validations for systems who have experienced some of the same things and hopefully use the information to create some change in the field as much as we can. So if you are a provider, we encourage you to listen to the whole episode with an open mind and understand some of the nuances, understand some of the things that might appear very harmless in your own mind and looking at them in a way that helps you understand how they can actually be harmful just the same. And if you're a system and you have some of these dynamics in your own therapy, perhaps this episode will give you some language that you can use with your provider, or perhaps you can just share the episode with your provider and it can create an opportunity to have a conversation that is deeper that maybe can change the trajectory of therapy that started to go south or has been going south and shift it to a more positive direction. So let's dive in. We have definitely mentioned before, and we know a lot of other people who live with associative identities have mentioned before, the fact that training in treating people who have dissociative identities, DID, OSDD, doesn't actually happen in graduate schools at all. People who want to be proficient in treating folks with dissociative identities really need to seek training after graduate school through workshops, webinars, conferences, individual and group consultation. And many of those trainings 
are not informed by people who have lived experience. And so why is that important? In many ways, sometimes when you just say that alone, it feels like a hot button that people who are treating people with dissociative identities who don't have information from those with lived experience get all upset and feel like people who do have lived experience are somehow overreacting, are angry unnecessarily, fill in the blank, something that is kind of negative. The reality is when we say that many of the trainings are not informed by people with lived experience and that is problematic, it's not to suggest that those without lived experience don't know anything at all. That's not it. Rather that without being informed by people with lived experience, they're really missing some very important nuances and harm happens as a result. And many of these providers have the very best of intentions. But what we know from other social justice movements is that once harm has been caused, intentions are irrelevant. It's the impact that matters. And as providers, we have basically all taken an oath to do no harm. That's our first task. Much of the training for providers tends to emphasize not speaking directly with parts. It assumes that dissociation itself is bad or maladaptive or just pick a word that means negative and nobody should be doing it, right? It assumes that by directly communicating with parts that it somehow, open quote, encourages bad behavior. Yet we also know, right, that dissociation is a survival mechanism. It's something that the brain does automatically. And many, many people acknowledge dissociative identities as being a brilliantly creative way that the brain has learned to survive unspeakable horrors. The other thing that gets assumed You know, a lot of times when people are saying like, don't talk directly to parts, don't let them do that. It assumes that there is one main or core self, and that is actually not the case for many systems. There isn't one overarching quote unquote host that is out all of the time or most of the time and has this innate ability to communicate with all the other parts. That doesn't happen for many, many systems. If parts don't have the ability to communicate with each other and translate, convey, or speak for other parts, then assuming that they can do that and insisting that they do that really leaves you in a stalemate where no progress is going to be made for quite some time, if ever. And it's important to pause to remember that parts are formed for inherently good reasons. They generally ensured survival in really horrific circumstances. And in many realms, they even ensured some thriving, right? Like, so the parts that were able to go to school, like, nothing was wrong. The parts that take care of work, family, friends, relationships, those fierce getting shit done parts can be really, really important, including during the time after the trauma has subsided, assuming that it has, because trauma can go well into adulthood. So it's really interesting when you think about it, when people say like, you need to find compassion for all of your parts and be curious about them that those are the same people who then reject them and create these unnecessary barriers by refusing to communicate with them directly. And as a result, harm gets caused. So these same people, you know, who are basically saying your parts are good and you need to find compassion for them are also saying your parts are bad and I can't talk to them directly because you shouldn't be dissociating into them. 
it's really a mixed message and it's really confusing for people. And it's very confusing for parts that are listening and trying to figure out how to navigate the therapy session. These are providers who underscore that it's really because of parts that we survived, which when you say that, right, it underscores the value of parts. So if the parts have value, why are we afraid to talk directly to them? The same people who acknowledge that many parts are trapped in the pain of the past and that they need updating or rescuing or the understanding that the trauma is over, that they need healing, but yet they won't talk directly to them to provide them the help and care that those parts need. And they can really dig their heels in and insist that somehow who they perceive to be as the main host of the system be the person that translate it. And yet, as we've mentioned, they may not have the ability to do so. And so you're stuck in a stalemate there. The people who acknowledge that parts have important jobs today that are integral to your functioning, as well as parts that might be misinformed and inadvertently creating problems for us as a system. Wouldn't it be so much easier to talk directly to those parts to explore how they are functioning in ways that are beneficial as well as functioning in ways that stymie a system? It really isn't optional to talk directly to parts It's necessary. And still so many people who believe that talking to parts is problematic and encourages abnormal or deviant behavior, which I had to pause there because like if the hair on the back of your neck didn't stand up when I said deviant behavior, it probably should or because that view is really harmful. It doesn't create a safe enough space for healing. And in fact, it does the exact opposite. It suggests that the provider wants to eliminate parts, even when they might directly tell you that they don't want to. So what's coming up next is a little bit more of a personal share, mostly as a way to illustrate some of the harm that can happen. We're going to use our experience with the previous therapist that we went to, mostly due to an increase in PTSD symptoms. In full transparency, we didn't lead off with, oh, by the way, we were diagnosed with DID 30 years ago. And as a result of trauma, sort of had our system reorganized and then went into denial about it and blah, blah, blah. We didn't do any of that because we just weren't in that space, I guess. She had built herself out to be an expert in trauma and dissociation, DID, as I said, and talked a lot about how she was even in a peer supervision group with Janina Fisher how she had worked at Bessel van der Kolk's center, and she knew lots and lots and lots about trauma dissociation, CPTSD, DID, et cetera. So in many ways, we sort of figured like, well, you know, if that diagnosis is actually accurate, she'll figure it out. And uh, if we're in denial, she'll figure it out. We went in there with plenty of fear, lots of shame, and plenty of embarrassment due to frankly, the questionable narrative that mental health providers are supposed to have all their shit together. It, it is a questionable narrative. Everybody struggles with some type of mental health issue at some point in time. And when we note that we experience a significant amount of shame and embarrassment and concern, it's not to suggest that that should be part of the diagnostic criteria or a ubiquitous experience of everyone with dissociative identities by any means. It just so happens that it was part of our journey and sometimes still is. Anyway, this particular therapist offered lots of reassurance saying that she knew that there was a strong and highly competent therapist part and that the highly accomplished professional track record that we had was proof of that or that we have is proof of that. And essentially, you know, kind of don't worry about what she thinks or and or she recognizes that that's not what we were going to her for help with anyway. And we didn't need help with that. That initially felt pretty good 
that somebody could basically say, you know, we get that you can have a lot of trauma. We get that you can have a lot of unhealed trauma. We get that you can have a lot of PTSD, dissociative symptoms, and still be a really great mental health provider and leader. So that's like, okay, well, that's good, right? And so we get started. And at first, you know, it seemed kind of okay. She was able to pretty respectfully convey that we had parts that were much more compartmentalized than other people's. Uh, She said some of the right things, to be honest. Like she would say things like, we don't want to get rid of any parts. That is not what we want to do. And you should never say that you want to get rid of any of your parts because parts are always listening. And it's because of them that you're here. And that seemed like a very respectful, accurate thing to say. But a red flag early on was how very judgmentally she tended to speak about her other clients with DID. And I want to clarify, she was not breaching HIPAA. She was not sharing any details or identifying details about other clients. But she would talk about other clients' behaviors in ways that were very condescending, very snarky, and almost as if she was disgusted with it, which was very challenging to be on the receiving end of as a client with DID, but honestly also as a provider who feels very strongly about compassionate, respectful empowering care. One of the things that she did a lot of complaining about was her clients who would email her in the evening after session. So to her, she believed, or she basically sort of relegated any type of emailing or texting that a, that a client would do after session as always being done in a dissociative process. And therefore in her mind, it was, it didn't warrant reading or explanations. And she would say, oh, you know, I have these clients and they would send me these really long emails like after session and I don't even read them. Do it when they're dissociated. They don't even know what they're writing anyway. Like, you know, sometimes I'll ask in session, do you know, do you want to talk about that email that you sent? And some of them don't even know that they sent me an email and she would roll her eyes. It seemed that it was an infringement of her personal time somehow. For the record, for anyone who is now worried about sending your provider an email or a text, please don't be worried about that because those emails give providers incredible insight and they can be a really, really great way to bring difficult content into session. And it can be a really great way for parts to be able to gently call in other parts that are creating problems for them. So if your provider has said that they're okay with you sending emails and texts, go ahead and do that. We want to say that unfortunately for us, all of her eye rolls and complaining and sort of condescending facial expressions and snarkiness has made it impossible for us to use email since. There are parts that feel very strongly about not getting in trouble, not doing the wrong thing. It's those fawning, people-pleasing parts. And the amount of anxiety and symptoms that they suffer as a result of breaking what they perceive to be as rules is so high that it creates problems in other places in our life and just kind of isn't worth it. And it's really, really unfortunate and harmful because there is content that could have gotten into other sessions that we're unable to bring in. Maybe because we don't have access to it when we're in session, but we have access to it at other points in time because the parts that do have access to that information are not the parts that are present in session at that time. And it would be in many ways nice to be able to share that. And there may be providers that feel very judgmental about that, that that's something that we should just quote unquote get over. However, being a system is complex 
system members need to be able to communicate with each other and collaborate with each other. And there has to be system agreement. So if there are parts that feel really strongly that that is a problematic behavior, then we don't have system agreement and we can't proceed with it. So hopefully, if you're a provider and you're listening, you can pause to see how that's harmful, never mind the condescending tone of voice and the facial expressions. That's another issue, right? Like that implies lack of worth, that implies bad behavior, et cetera. It's the lasting impact that that had that is so harmful and creates a barrier. Another red flag that came up throughout and very early was this repeated unflattering commentary on DID as a diagnosis or as a way of making fun of or criticizing another individual, whether they had or didn't have DID themselves. So if anybody, if we brought in something, let's just say that someone else had done that was negative or impacted us negatively or seemed just really flabbergasting or frustrating. She would literally scoff and say, oh, that's so DID. And her facial expression had that I guess we would label it as sort of disgust and condescension. And it was always interesting because typically when she would do that, it was this very annoying behavior that had happened in an individual who didn't have the diagnosis. But even if they had the diagnosis, like that is not an appropriate way to respond. We don't use mental health diagnoses as a way to put down other people. We don't use mental health diagnoses to further stigmatize an entire population of people. It's harmful. It's judgmental. It's rude. There are so many different things that are wrong with it. And at first when it happened, we thought maybe it was some kind of slip. Maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe she was feeling burnt out. I mean, shit happens, right? However, it continued to happen and it became really problematic because it was pretty clear at that point that she had some really negative connotations about folks who have DID, even though she was reportedly an expert in treating it. And she talked a lot about how good she was at treating it. Like sometimes she would give an example of a client that she had worked with that struggled remarkably with dissociation and different parts. And she would clasp her hands together. Like she'd clap them together and clasp them. And she'd look up at the sky and she'd say, and she healed. And thank God she healed while she's kind of shaking her hands together in that way that people do, like when they're praying really hard or they're very, very thankful. And when you stop to think about how to unravel or untangle that dynamic and that body language, what she is, what's not said that she is saying is DID is a terrible diagnosis that needs complete and total healing. And every Everybody should be just like she is singlet. It made it really, really challenging to show up in any kind of authentic way. And it literally makes your guard go up, right? There's nothing safe about somebody who is talking in that way. And so it became really clear that we were going to need to have to call her in on that. And so we did. We said that we were struggling with being authentic in the context of the relationship because it felt like she was judgmental. We gave her some examples. We said it felt like she was negative and could be really condescending. And she did not initially take any accountability for that behavior or those actions. What she said instead was, oh, you know, it's just how therapists talk. Like, I'm just talking to you as a colleague. Well, you know, in that moment, we were not in a relationship as a colleague. That was in the context of an individual therapy session that we were paying for. So that type of relationship was inappropriate. And secondly, we're a provider. 
that feels really strongly about strengths-based perspectives, compassionate, respectful care that is affirming. And there's nothing about that behavior that embodies compassion or quality or respect. It's anything but. And the reality is that's not how therapists talk about their clients. And so we had some back and forth in some, it was an interesting dynamic because in some ways it felt like us working in the capacity of a paid job, providing feedback, right? To an individual who really struggled to hear it and take accountability for it. Like a challenging consultation. Eventually she looked like she thought about it. She kind of looked up to one side and then she shrugged her shoulders and said, I guess I am judgmental. And that was the end of it. It did very little to create an environment that is safe enough for healing. Certainly everybody is entitled to their opinions, but in the context of a therapy session, that should be a space where anybody can be assured that the person that's working with them cares about them and their well-being and has compassion. The other part of the dynamic that was so highly problematic and harmful was the complete refusal to be authentic and take accountability in the context of the relationship and for the behavior that occurred. People who have DID, OSDD, tend to need a higher level of authenticity and realness in the relationship. It's necessary for healing. We know when somebody is not being authentic. We know when somebody is essentially gaslighting us. We know when somebody is lying to us. We can sniff it out. We can sense it. And when somebody refuses to take accountability and just be upfront and honest, It really erodes trust. And rather than being a harmful experience, it could have been a profoundly healing experience of just having that realness of somebody being able to say, you know, you're right. And then insert some type of explanation that's real and authentic. And if she didn't have one, it could have been simply, thank you for pointing that out. I really need to look at that. And it could have been a profoundly healing corrective experience, but she opted not to go that route. The lack of authenticity really created an enormous barrier to trust and healing. Something else that was very similar is she had a frequent habit of really criticizing other modalities, other big names actually in the field of trauma treatment. And while nobody is perfect and people are entitled to have their opinions and to say what they think to a degree in the context of somebody else's individual therapy, especially a trauma survivor, particularly somebody with DID who has very sensitive parts, highly sensitive parts, people-pleasing parts, and fawning parts. It is really important to be careful about what you say and how you say it, particularly when you're talking about other modalities that could be helpful and other people whose work may be really beneficial for that client. So you as a provider, just because you don't like it, doesn't mean that your clients won't benefit from it. But you hold a position of power in the therapeutic relationship and you can be highly influential. What I noticed that happened for us was that these snarky comments that she was making and these really kind of big put downs really did end up creating some negative thoughts and feelings internally with different parts. And so because the people that she was choosing to criticize happened to be people that are so well-known and whose modalities and therapies tend to be beneficial for a lot of people, We were exposed a lot to those folks, and it was really interesting to notice and acknowledge and work through all of the negativity that was caused by her influence. It made parts really reluctant to be willing to try modalities that could be exceptionally beneficial to us. So it's important for providers to know your influence and your power can actually divert resources away from your clients. 
you can influence your clients so that they will be, or their parts will be vehemently opposed to even trying some of those modalities or techniques that they could in fact benefit from. And that is harmful. And some providers legitimately wonder, is there ever a time when it's appropriate to share a negative perspective? Well, let's take, for example, if a client had a terrible experience with a modality, you can validate that without trashing other folks, right? Because no matter what, no modality is going to work for all of the people all of the time, but that modality will work for some of the people. And we don't want to remove resources from folks, especially when there are not enough resources as there is to begin with. Another red flag that came up when she would reference parts, she would say, we're not talking about people living in your head. No, 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 no. They're just neurons. Totally understand that there are people, especially early on in beginning to understand the diagnosis, what it is, what it means, that really find brain science a whole lot easier to swallow than parts language uh, to to determine their experiences. But her science was incorrect. They're not neurons. It's also kind of challenging to find compassion for neurons. So it was very interesting that any time I'd find compassion for a part, she would immediately refer to it as a neuron as if she didn't want me to be attached to another part of our system. That somehow, whether it's me or another part of the system finding compassion for yet another part, was almost like she had decided that we think that there's a collection of different 3D people all living together somehow and that she had to get rid of that delusion. She worked pretty hard at separating our parts. It was almost like there was some effort that she was putting into keeping parts as compartmentalized and separate as possible. It's really kind of ironic because it works against the ultimate goal, which is cohesion, cooperation, collaboration, which you need communication for. And in order to generally get the communication, cooperation, collaboration piece, compassion and curiosity precedes that. So it was really, really curious and damaging, actually, when our system would work towards that kind of cohesion, she'd be busy splitting it up, acting as if we thought there were all these 3D separate people running around as a collective, which, I mean, I'm not an idiot. Obviously, there's not a whole bunch of people running around separately from each other as a group running together. It just seems so strange looking back on it. It's sort of like questions today that we have are What's her comfort level and discomfort level? Did she really believe this was a delusion? Did she Was she concerned that we were, quote unquote, attached to a diagnosis? I mean, there's so many things that don't make any sense about it, because why wouldn't you want any client of yours to develop compassion for different parts, regardless of how compartmentalized those parts are? Providers' discomfort with their clients' comfort, comfort with their own parts gets in the way of effective treatment, care, and progress, and it is harmful. This particular therapeutic relationship really lacked direction from the onset, and no provider should assume that their clients know how therapy should work or should go, even when your client is a therapist themselves, because they may work very differently from you. And it really helps any trauma survivor to know, to have some sense of direction, to know what you're going to be working on first, what the goals are. That's typically something that you determine together. That was something that was missing in this relationship. And that caused some problems. You know, very often we were completely confused about what we were supposed to be doing. So for example, if 
there was a part that was really struggling with some traumatic material. We might bring that in, but she would just nod her head and say, okay, or how does it feel to talk about that? Which I don't know about any of you, but we didn't find that particularly helpful at all. She would also get very angry if we were journaling. So our journal is filled with very uh, distinct handwriting styles. There are different parts that can write back and forth to each other or could just express themselves in their own handwriting. But she decided that that was a dissociative process and that that was therefore then bad. And she would say, don't do that. You're re-traumatizing it. You're creating more brain damage and you should do that in here with me. Bring that stuff in here with me. But yet when that stuff went in there, we would get the, okay, or what does it feel like to talk about that? And that was it. So then we started thinking like, all right, well, if all we're going to get is a nod or saying, okay, or what's it like to talk about that stuff? Maybe, maybe we're in that stabilization phase and we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. So we won't talk about this stuff. We're used to dealing with traumatic material and how it comes up. So let's instead talk about the struggles of daily life, right? So we can talk about things like what happens when we get confused or glitchy, and maybe there's a way to figure out some better strategies for internal communication to function better during those days, right? Where we have to do less compensating. Well, that didn't go so well either. Basically, that would get a look of, I'm not even sure what the look was. She'd nod and kind of go, okay, okay no explanation, no nothing. So then we thought, okay, let's just dig into research. If there's anything that parts of us are good at, it is research and figuring shit out. So we did a bunch of reading. We did a bunch of of looking around. We actually did find parts of the Kathy Steele book to be helpful. Not all of it, but some of it, the coping with trauma-related dissociation. We were really interested in the inner world piece um, because the way that we experienced our inner world was uh, parts that we could see that were kind of an almost like a black theater type space. Um, that's the only way I can explain it. I remember taking a theater class in college and having it be everything was like black. There was no set, you know. And so in learning from that book how to give our inner world an upgrade and how it could potentially be used, you know, that we didn't realize like, oh, we could actually use that space to have some parts hang out in it when we had to attend to things that might not be appropriate for certain parts or that when we had to do things that would be triggering for other parts, they could go to a a space in in the inner world and hang out while Parts that were able to take care of certain situations could just take care of the certain situations. We were like, that seems like a good idea. And so we worked on it. And when we told her about it, she seemed pretty excited. But because she saw parts as being bad, even though she said that she didn't, at the end of every session, she would say, okay, well, so-and-so has work to do. And so y'all need to go to your rooms and shut the door. And it became really punitive. She did think to arm us with two skills, which was during like traumatic reactivation, looking for any movement that the body feels like it needs to complete, like any sort of urges to move physically in some way to go ahead and let those movements happen so that the body can complete it and you'll get relief. That was helpful. She also suggested system meetings in the morning and being somewhat confused about how to make that happen when communication wasn't particularly good, 
she did say, just invite everybody to show up, ask internally if there's anything that or any part needs, and then just make sure after you end that you do something to ground yourself into the present day, like so that you're not in that dissociative space and just run the meetings the same way that you would run group therapy. That was to some degree helpful, but we were pretty much stuck trying to figure that out ourselves. So we would then ask, right? Like, I'm not really sure what we're supposed to be doing in here, right? Because at that point, we'd sort of tried everything. If trauma was coming up, we talked about that, but we weren't getting anything. We were sort of shut down by the lack of response. So we looked at daily functioning, but we weren't really getting any skills until we did the research our own. And then she was excited about that, but then she shut that down. It was really clear that she was trying to keep parts only uh, accessible during session time, but that's actually not how this diagnosis works. So we just asked, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm really confused. And she would say, it just takes a long time. But what we kept finding is that we would show up and it didn't matter what we talked about. We weren't getting anything at all back anymore. Uh, And sometimes we would say, after a period of silence, thoughts, (laughs) you know, trying to elicit some kind of back and forth. It seemed like she somehow decided that her job was just to kind of sit there and be, uh, I guess, that blank slate that did nothing more than listen. But that does not actually do much to drive therapy forward. There was a dual relationship involved. At one point, we had consulted with her, and that led into individual therapy. We knew uh, one of our our clinician friends actually had done some individual work with this provider and told us that she was quite good and that she had the ability to do both consultation and individual therapy, and in fact, that this is something that this friend of ours did. And so we thought, okay, well, that could be kind of good because occasionally things come up and maybe, you know, we can do both. And so sometimes, I mean, heck, we're a system. We're really good at compartmentalization. So like we can pay for a consultation session and do only consultation and we can pay for individual therapy and do only individual therapy. That worked for us. It didn't work for her. Sometimes she would, for lack of a better way of describing it, you know, she would basically just talk really negatively about her clients with DID. And then all of a sudden she would kind of like physically almost jump and she'd look to the side, like she realized that she had done something wrong. And then she'd lean in and say, you know, right now I'm talking to you like a colleague, therapist to therapist, not as therapist to client, but it literally would be in the middle of our individual therapy session. Or she'd just start asking questions about clients of hers that struggled with the particular area of expertise that we have, or about some of our job activities, presentations, interviews, which is not an appropriate use of our individual therapy session. And it was actually, as an aside, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it was really interesting when when we finally terminated the relationship, she said, well, was it the dual relationship? And it's kind of funny because again, like I don't, think that we necessarily had any difficulty with the dual relationship. She was the one that really struggled to figure out how to navigate it. So then um, prior to termination, through these number of problems, we hit the no parts allowed in session rule because we accidentally had a part show up. Don't really know exactly what it was that triggered that part forward, but it was a part that we have a significant amount of co-consciousness with, although we are a little bit Swiss cheesy with it. She was pretty condescending when she figured out that it was a different part and was rolling her eyes and looked somewhat disgusted and basically said that, 
you know, the rules were that parts had to talk through the part that she perceived to be the main self. The problem with her, though, is that she was often not paying attention. So she missed parts. And at times, it was, I think most of the time, it was really clear that she wasn't paying attention enough to recognize some switches that did happen that were masked, but that might be evident through a change in perspective, say, or the period of time where she was basically like, parts have to talk through you. You just watch it happen. Like use the EMDR technique of watching it on a screen and tell me what you see. It's better to do it that way. Unfortunately, at that time, we didn't have the particular level of communication that we needed. Couldn't translate if I wanted to, if, I'm, if I was the part that's present. There are other parts that also couldn't translate. There are some parts that probably could, but she didn't even understand that that was happening. It's particularly challenging to think about how there are some parts that they're not welcome in session. She also clearly didn't want them to be present out of session because she was sending them all to their rooms, but yet they were integral to our ability to function in the world. We have more than one part that functions as a therapist. Thankfully, the parts work really well together in that capacity and they do a really good job. Imagine if they listened and actually did go to their room, shut the door, and stopped being present. We would have been completely sunk. And we would have lost our job, not because of having a diagnosis, but because we wouldn't have been able to function the way that we can with all of our parts when they work together. So, yikes. If we had stayed in that relationship, it's unlikely that we really would have made much progress at all. We did a lot, a lot of work on our own to try to figure things out. After having a number of very challenging experiences, we had a a very, we had a couple actually of very triggering, difficult medical appointments that she was just not helpful with. We have a part that had some very strong negative feelings about her and, and did for the entire time we worked together. Part's a lot smarter than I am. So that part wanted to ask her how healing happens. We wanted to get a list of what she determined was the way in which anybody heals. So we asked and she was able to give us a list. And after two years and eight months, we had done exactly nothing on that list. I don't know what it was that she was waiting for us to do. Don't have any idea. So we decided to terminate. Um, And the When we initially decided to discuss termination, we kind of expected to be able to have a very authentic back and forth communication, right? That it could say, these are the things that were not working and maybe she could take some accountability and we could take some accountability for things that we could have done differently or better. But that's not what happened. What happened was she said, well, you know, you invited us on this, you invited me on this journey with you and you're just used to doing everything on your own and you might want to think about that. So since we generally think everything's our fault anyway and things don't work because of us, we took that to heart and didn't terminate immediately. But then we went back and had a very difficult thing happen. And again, we were met with the same lack of response, lack of skills, coaching, lack of information, lack of lack of anything. And at that point, um, a very vocal part of our system uh, internally Basically, it was like, I'm not like it was done. It made it very clear that she was done. And when she's done, we're all done uh, because she's going to put up a barrier. So as a result, we did terminate. 
And as a result of the termination and the way that it was handled, we actually did lose a significant amount of communication that we did have, even though we talked about it as a system prior to terminating. It was really interesting kind of what happened. Things got really bumpy for a period of time. And uh, in some ways, like, thank goodness for all of the things that we were able to learn from online sources and books, some really fantastic YouTube channels, for example. It was the other resources that helped us upgrade our inner world that help us understand that in order to have communication really remain in place, that we had to be committed and be willing to hear answers and be willing to tolerate things that other parts said. We learned that it was a lot of work, you know, and that we're not great at it all the time. So in retrospect, you know, if she had taken the time to practice the curiosity that she had initially preached, if she could see that parts were inherently good, she could have realized how important our parts are to our functioning, and we likely could have made a lot of progress. And despite saying, you know, in the very beginning, like, oh, no, no, we don't want to get rid of parts, that's exactly what her actions were trying to do. And so by contrast, we were really lucky to find a therapist who has a lot of experience treating DID from a very strengths-based, curious, compassionate lens and who has no problem calling us on our shit and is very good at therapeutic roasting. She um, took a really thorough history, and then I realized, wow, the other therapist had never actually done a history. That was really interesting. The next therapist was really good about asking about parts, names, ages, personalities, function, provided a ton of education. She was actually how we found out that the reason medication never worked for us way back in the 90s was because the part that needed the medication had to be the part taking the medication. Like that was mind-blowing to find out. The true, that's true also of some food intolerances. Who knows? Like not every part is intolerant to the same foods. That was mind-blowing and also life-changing. She gave us very explicit instructions on how to tear down the inner world that had been ruined by everyone getting sent to their rooms. And her reaction to parts getting sent to their rooms was so incredibly affirming and validating and beautiful that it was healing in and of itself. She also gave us very explicit instructions on how to rebuild the inner world. And she was very interested in seeing what that inner world looked like and sharing it with us. She was interested in art that our parts created. So we had um, parts that can draw and some better than others. And sometimes parts will draw other parts. And so she looked extremely interested in seeing those pictures versus the previous therapist who didn't care, just nodded and didn't want to know. She was also very encouraging of communicating by email and in writing or texting, which, you know, i we've already shared we don't do, which I think frustrates her because she'll say like, did you stop to think that it might give me some insight that I could use and that would be helpful for me? But it's a whole thing. She was really, really good at helping us be more aware of parts when they're around, really good at coaching and communication, especially in asking like when something happens that gets confusing or we don't understand, you know, she's the, she's right there with, did you ask? <laughs> And she's a little bit of a hard ass about body care and system care. And she is very much on the side of the team. And I mean the internal team. So 
Well, she can also say, you know, it's definitely long-term work. There's direction in this work. And we've learned so much. And she is a person who has been able to take accountability. We had a session go south and she was like, yep, you're right. Your perceptions of me being annoyed were correct, but I was not annoyed with you. This is what was happening in the background for me. I should have told you in the moment and I didn't. And it made a lot of trust. It made a lot of sense. It actually improved trust and created actually some healing. So it's been really nice to see the difference between, or it was really nice to see the difference between a therapist who can emphasize patience and trust and respect between parts and who is clear that parts are all welcome. And there are ground rules, right? Like nobody's allowed to throw anything. Nobody's allowed to yell. Everybody has to respect the physical space. There's definitely things in there that we probably would never do anyway, but her being able to set up her rules and reassure us that she can hear anything that we have to say that she can take care of herself, that that was in place, just went a long, long way in creating a safe enough environment for healing. She's excellent at coaching and managing challenges when they come up. And so, you know, if you can look back on everything that we've talked about today with this, what feels like an overshare in some ways and a vulnerable share, it's done in the service for hopefully people to be able to see one approach made things worse. When somebody was wedded to the idea that parts shouldn't be coming out because they're bad, it's bad when they come out. They should just remain unseen and unheard unless it's translated. It made things get very stuck. It created unnecessary tension. And certainly there were some other issues there as well, right? The other approach, one that was curious and compassionate and welcoming created an environment that allowed the work to move forward and that allowed progress to happen and collaboration and communication to happen. As a provider, you have the opportunity to get to know and understand parts of systems and how they work and function. And that can help clients understand how their parts can work together internally in a way that life starts to go smoother for them and gets better for them. So if parts that are staying up too late make functioning harder the next day, as an example, you get to talk directly to that part and help it understand why it's staying up, or you get to talk directly to that part and understand why it's staying up late, but you also get to help it understand its impact on the body and the system. You can help negotiate around parts' varying needs to get to the cohesion that makes everything work better for the system. And by your talking directly to the parts and helping it understand, you can facilitate internal communication with your clients. You can help parts see the benefits in being able to talk with each other internally, how they can take care of each other internally, how one part can go with another part into the internal world and sit out an experience that might be wildly triggering. You can help another part understand how it and maybe in combination with still another part can handle situations that still smaller parts can't. And you can model together with them how they can do that without you. And that's how their life starts to work better for them. Or you can dig your heels in and disallow communication and clients may get stuck losing a lot of sleep. Their health might suffer. They may not be eating well because some parts don't have bodies and don't know that they need to eat or other parts are not aware or other parts have eating disorders and aren't getting their 
the care that they need to get better. You may have, as a result, systems that don't learn what they need to learn because you're busy basically digging in your heels and forcing your way of doing things because you're trying to get your client to look like somebody who doesn't have dissociative identity. It's your choice which clinician that you want to be. And we hope you'll choose the former, not the latter. And if you're a system and you're in a situation where some of the things that we've described are happening to you or you are working with a therapist who is vehemently opposed to communicating directly with your parts, one thing that we suggest that you do is talk with your therapist about getting a consultation with another therapist who has potentially who has lived experience with dissociative identities and treats dissociative identities, or at least has a lot of experience in treating dissociative identities from potentially a different theoretical lens where that consultant can consult with your therapist one-on-one, can also consult with you one-on-one, and then can join you together in a session to make recommendations and talk about how the relationship has been going to explore the benefits as well as the costs of talking versus not talking directly to parts. Another thought is if this has been helpful or could help inform your therapist anyway, feel free to share. Perhaps just being able to listen to the experiences that we've had may help that individual clinician reflect and see benefits in trying things a different way. As always, thank you so much for being here, for your support, for sharing the space with us, and for just being the amazing human beings that you all are, even if you don't believe that yet. Don't give up. Keep trying and healing and know that we believe in you. Until next time, take good care. Thank you for tuning in. You can find our blog on Substack at healingmyparts.substack.com and on Instagram at healingmyparts. Just a disclaimer, any information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for professional therapy or behavioral health care, nor does listening to the podcast constitute a therapist-client relationship. Please be sure to take extra good care of you. And until next time, keep healing and thriving.